Happy Easter, everyone. We got to say this, you know, he is risen. That's right, amen. Yesterday, um, yesterday we, we went over to Augusta, Georgia. Uh, sadly, an uncle of mine passed away. And um, he, but it, it was such an interesting thing to see because you really realize in a funeral for, for somebody who knew the Lord that we do not grieve as the world grieves. That we don't lose. When, when someone is lost, we, there's, all, there's such a big upside. You know what I mean? You, you're, it's that you have grief in your heart and sadness and you see the ramifications. What, how many lives? My uncle was a physician, uh, so he touched, literally touched and saved a lot of people's lives. Um, but he had, been, he had been saved his first year of medical school um, when through apologetics, through a conference, um, because he had big questions about, he was a very intelligent person, had big questions about the authenticity of the gospel and all these other things, but he, uh, he was saved in, in medical school and went to a conference at a church and they were willing to let him explore the questions and get answers. And when that happened, it broke down the walls and the barriers that he had to faith and came to faith in Christ. And he was just faithful to, to share uh, his, his faith with his patients and other, other people at the hospital and just, you know, lived the life. And it was sweet to hear my aunt testify of how he lived at home. You know, it was a glimpse into, I haven't spent much time with him since I was a teenager, but um, to, just to hear how that he, he was living a godly life in the home and telling the, and reminding the family, turning their hearts back to God all the time. But in here in the ceremony, they talked about, they talked about the, the glory of the resurrection for like the first 20 minutes. And I, and I thought, I think somebody died, didn't they? Aren't we supposed to at some point or another mention that, you know? But, there, but, there, but as, that's what I'm saying. As, as Christians, we don't grieve as the world grieves. And, and there's a celebration. He, he had cancer, and it, was, it had caused him to come to a state that was really not, um, was not, it was not pleasant. It was not good for him. And so he was set free from those sufferings, those difficulties. And God, God brought, him, brought him home to glory. And I just, um, it was so... And the, and the preacher at the church there was—he um, pointed out what a blessing it is to be buried on Easter weekend, <laughs> because—and so we go to the graveside, and there, um, you know, he's reminding us of the resurrection. And um, it was a time—it was a time of—it was sad, of course, but there was such a sense of of redemption even in death. And I just thank the Lord, guys. And if you're in Christ and you're here today and the Lord is alive and working in your heart, then, then the resurrection power of Christ is at work in you. And that is an incredible thing. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the grace of Christ that's present here today. Lord, we come in remembrance with full joy of the resurrection Lord, the power of your resurrection when you overcame death, came up from the grave, Lord, and, and, and appeared to so many, Lord, and commissioned your church and went uh, into glory and were seated at the right hand of power and sent the Holy Spirit, Lord, and um, we, we remember all of that today. And we can even envision the despair, Lord, that there was just a day or two ago, just in knowing and in, in seeing you die, the disciples watching you die and knowing you were in the grave. But we remember today, Lord, the glory of your resurrection. And I want to pray that today, Lord, in this service and in this time, that you would bring about your power in us. 
oh God. And I pray that if anyone is in a place where their faith needs to be revived, their faith would be revived today by the resurrection power of Christ. And if there are those without faith, I pray in the name of Jesus that the resurrection power of Christ would come in and raise those hearts up from the grave of sin into a glorious life in you. And I pray, Lord, that your word would do its work today by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 together. This is, this is such a valuable passage. If you, had to, if you had to see just the simplicity of the gospel, this passage right here is so valuable to look at and to meditate on and to see. What I thought about in reading this is we're going to see in just a moment as Paul articulates what is the gospel message. Do you look and see also in this the purity of the gospel? That the gospel has come down to us and that what we preach today is not some wild variation of some idea that originated a long time ago, but it's exactly the same thing that they preached in the first century at the very time that it happened and it has the same power today. The gospel has come down to us undiluted in full power. And so in reading this, we ought to be able to take what we read right here that was written so long ago and look at what we, what we preach and what we believe and say, is this what I believe? And is this what I would give to someone else if they needed to know the truth of, how, of salvation, the truth and of the, or the reason for the hope that we have? But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared. So this is, a, this is Jesus who came. He died for our sins. He went into the grave. He came. He was raised from the dead and then starts appearing to people. He then appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So when Paul got knocked off his high horse, as they say, on the road to Damascus, it wasn't just a vision he was having. Jesus appeared to him. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And this he, he says in verse 10, but we all could say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And in reading this, you look at it and, and you have to sometimes remove yourself from the context of things that you know, things that you have heard and things that you've believed. You have to remove yourself from it for a little bit. You have to sometimes put yourself in a place where you say, if I hadn't ever heard this before, what would I think if I read this? 
and you find out that somebody died for our sins. And that automatically, if you don't know anything about the sacrifices or atonement or any of these things that the Bible talks about, that raises questions, right? What is that? What is died for our sins? We kind of have some sense of what sins are, but what is died for our sins? And then this person, Jesus, who you're hearing about, goes into the grave. But then we find out this person, Jesus, is then also raised from the dead. And that is a fairly incredible idea, isn't it? That Jesus was raised from the dead. And if we look at this with fresh eyes, we realize that God has built into, and Paul goes into this in great detail in 1 Corinthians, but, he, but he is, God has built into the gospel an aspect that the world would call foolishness. Foolishness. That's what you believe? That's crazy. That's crazy. When Paul was standing, the Apostle Paul, who was, he was arrested um, by the Romans while he was attempting to preach the gospel to the Jews, um, in Acts chapter 25, this is sort of later on, he's been in prison for a while, um, he was <laughs> talking to a, with a guy named Festus. Festus is moving on, he, but he's having, he has this guest come into, into the palace named Agrippa, King Agrippa. And he's trying to explain this prisoner Paul that he's got. Festus is trying to explain to Agrippa this prisoner Paul that he has. And he's been listening to him. And he's been hearing all these things, but he's not come to faith. And he's trying to explain to Agrippa because Agrippa's in town. And you know these guys, all this prestige and whatever. They've got, he's got this, political, this politically interesting character that he's got in the prison. He's like, I want, you to, I want you to hear this guy, but listen to how Festus explains to Agrippa what's going on, why he's got this guy in prison. Acts 25, 19, he says, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him, talking about why he got arrested, or why the Jews were angry with him. They simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. So isn't that, a, that's, that's what somebody who doesn't know this world and doesn't believe it would hear and, and, and sort of summarize. Well, he's got some arguments and disputes about the way that their faith works out. And he, but, he, but there's this guy, Jesus, who he said was dead, but now he's not anymore. And Agrippa goes, ooh, that sounds interesting. I'll hear him myself tomorrow. And so the whole thing proceeds from there. But when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's trying, to, he's trying to explain the power of this message that we believe. He's trying to explain exactly how God has set it up. And one of the key elements to the way that this message works, this message that we believe, one of the key elements to how it works is God has wired into it, as I said before, an aspect of foolishness so that it will not ever be of man's reason or his pride that he comes to believe it. And then we are all thrown on the basis of just one thing in, at the very, well, it's, I, I say the basis, but it's actually an incredible thing. And it's, it's this thing of, I can't see a good reason that I ought to because it doesn't help me in this way. Or, you know, it's not going to build my, my, my career or my friendships or whatever over here. But there's this incredible thing called the power of God. And the power of God comes to work and come to, comes to press in on a person's heart and on their mind. And then suddenly, I'm hearing these words, and even though I can't find that it's reasonable to accept it, something in my heart is saying, but this is true. 
And then faith is that thing that meets up with the message. Faith is a gift of God, the Bible says. Faith meets with the message. And then in you, there is this incredible cry of salvation. I am a child of God. So, it's, so there are different modes and models that people have used down through history to say like, well, you're saved if you've prayed a sinner's prayer. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches as soon as you believe, you are saved. You might go and pray a sinner's prayer because repentance follows. But the, sin, the prayer didn't save you. It was that faith. Because if you look at it, it doesn't make sense that you believe this. If I ask for a show of hands in here, I, I'll ask. Raise your hand if you've ever seen anyone raised from the dead with your own two eyes. I was hoping somebody would, because I was going to give you the rest of the morning, okay? <laughs> but, um, and yet, how many of you believe that this dead man, Jesus, was raised from the dead, and you know it with all your heart? How is that possible? How is that possible? Well, here's how. You're all out of your mind. You've all lost your mind and received a gift from God called faith. And that faith has saved you and that faith has sanctified and sanctifying you and that faith has carried you into the presence of God when you've been praying and that faith has brought blessings down from heaven into your life and that faith has transformed your character and it's changed your mind And it's made you a different person and everybody around you who knew you before and knows you now could testify to that whether they believe or not. And that's the power of the message. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? He's looking around the church. Where's the debater of this age? And he's not literally looking around the church, but the idea is that who, he's, he's saying, where is the power of this kind, of this mode of operation? Because if you want to be super intelligent in Greek society, this is where you go. You go to these people. The wise men, the scribes, the debaters. And then he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? All the stuff you used to think was, was your enlightenment. And what did God do with it as soon as you became, came to have faith in Jesus Christ? He took your enlightenment and put it in the garbage can. Right. Now, he didn't delete the garbage can. You know how you're, you're in your computer, it works like this. You put stuff in the trash, but you've got it for a while. Because after he formed your mind and after God worked and, and changed things in your heart and mind, he let you have some of those things back out, not because they were tools of the gospel, because it was important for you to understand how to respond to these things. But for a while, he had you put it all away, didn't he? And he said, this isn't the stuff that saves. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, listen to this, this is God's master plan. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, or some translations say the foolishness of preaching, to save those who believe. Foolishness. So it's a very low door. The door to get in to the kingdom of God is a very low door. And anybody who won't humble themselves can't get through it. Can't get through it. We're stuck on the outside. You can look in the windows and you can listen to the music, but you can't come inside. 
1 Corinthians 1.27, later on in the same chapter, he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Isn't that incredible? That God said, actually, I'm going to put those things away. And I'm going to take the thing that everybody else looked at and said, isn't that foolish? And I'm going to lift that up. I'm going to exalt that before everyone else and say, yes, this is it. It's like those times when, as a parent, if you're a parent, uh, where, um, you know, the Bible talks about, like, you know, or the expression that we use is from the mouths of babes. It comes from Scripture. But once in a while, a child says something to you, and you feel like either, like, like corrected or illuminated by God through the child. Has anybody ever had that experience? And you're going, like, I didn't see that coming. There's all kinds of ways that you could look at this throughout the way that our faith comes together, but God is all the time looking for something that, uh, that people would say is inconsequential and don't worry about it, don't pay any attention to it. And he, God raises that thing up and says, no, that's the thing. That's the very thing that I'm after. So I want to take you to a graveside. The second most famous, I could say, graveside in the Bible <clears throat> and I want to show you somebody who's caught in a snare. I want to show you a person in this situation in John chapter 11. I want to show you a person who's caught in a snare, caught in a snare of their own reason. They want so badly to be a person of deep and real faith, and yet their own reasonings have caught them in a trap. And I want to show you this, and I want to show you also how Jesus takes us, when we try to be so wise, when we try to play the game, when we try to impress God or impress others or put on a show, whatever it is, I want to show you how Jesus takes this person from this place of, of their own reasonings and brings them into a place of total childlike faith and dependence on him and makes them free. Does that sound good to anybody else? I want you to see this. Let's go to John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. Jesus was called to come to the grave of Lazarus, but Jesus wasn't just always re responding to the urgency of the messages he received from other people. He stopped and he prayed. We assume he spent some time with his father, but he had a sense, he had some clarity about the timing of his response. And he turned to his disciples and he said, he said they're telling us Lazarus is really sick. And, and Jesus said, well, we're going to wait a little while. And, 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 you know, that's got, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, Lazarus is sick. We should go right away. But Jesus said, no, we're gonna, we need to wait a little while. And then he's talking to his disciples, and he says, he, and, he, and his, he, Jesus actually has uh, is become aware only by a revelation from God that Lazarus has died. And he tells his disciples, well, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And his disciples are, like, relieved. And they go, oh, good. Well, if he's just asleep, he'll be all right. And then Jesus has this little frustration moment with his disciples, and he goes, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> and the disciples are like, oh, that's more serious. And he says, yeah, but it's for the glory of God. Okay, now let's go. After it's too late, right? By all accounts, by all reason, it's too late. And so Jesus goes with his disciples. And in verse uh, 17 of chapter 11, John chapter 11, it says, when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. 
Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. And Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And if you know anything about human nature, about people, if you know anything of your own heart, then you can hear what she's saying, when, really, in her heart when she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when then she follows it with, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So this is telling us that Martha's faith was real, but Martha's faith was diluted with bitterness. She was fixed on a personal loss that Jesus could have prevented. And if you haven't been to this crossroads. Do we have that slide? If, uh, if you haven't been to this crossroads, at some point or another, you will be there. Where you're, you're, looking at, you're looking at all the great promises and all the great power of God. And you're looking at something where you, that you say, God, I know you, this didn't necessarily, from my perspective, have to happen, but here it is. So, and then in this moment, we have this real wrestling match with God and it goes back and forth and we have a struggle inside and we go, Lord, I, I, just, I just don't know what to make of it because why? Why? Why did this have to be? And if we aren't careful, our heart can be, as I said, diluted. Our faith can become diluted with bitterness. We find in this section that even her declarations of faith are full of accusation and blame. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's in, in a sense an accusation. She's blaming him. Whereas Jesus didn't kill her brother, she's blaming Jesus for his death. Jesus has let her down, and this is what's going on in her heart, so she can't trust him. But she is not without hope. As I said, she has faith. But she pressures Jesus then to give her her miracle. She says, even though, even though, okay, all right, let's back it up a little. I know that whatever you ask of God, God will do for you. And you just have to so, so love and respect Jesus and his way with us. Because he could have said anything. If he was like me, he'd have gotten his feelings hurt by the accusation. And then you want to say something in the flesh. Well, I can see how it is. Well, I guess I'm headed back then. I guess I'm not wanted here. That would be in the flesh, right? What we want to say, the, things we, the ways we want to respond. But Jesus didn't walk in the flesh, ever. He walked in the Spirit. And so Jesus, full of faith, well aware of what the will of God, looks right into her eyes, right past all the pain and all the hurt and everything else that she's feeling. And he looks right into her eyes and says, it says in verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And think about that, that moment. Jesus knows what he means. So you, there must have been some joy in Jesus when he's able to tell her this. I've come all this way. Now let me tell you, your brother will rise again. But she doesn't hear what Jesus is trying to say. She hears this reply from Jesus like a greeting card, word of sympathy. She's deaf to his real meaning. 
And so what does she do? Martha does what we do. Martha plays the game. Outwardly, she talks aloof theology with the Son of God. And inwardly, but inwardly, she's settling into despair. Look what she says. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So she comes and tries to talk, okay, all right, no, Jesus is talking to me about a theological truth, and I think I need to really try to get on his, okay, I, yeah, all right, I'm, okay, I, yeah, that's right, I'm pitying myself, so, so yes, okay, yes, Lord, I know, yes, he will, he, will, he will rise again on the last day. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You, have that, you feel that pressure to suddenly say the right thing. She knows so much, yet she cannot understand. And this is her personality. You know, your personality does have an impact on the way that you navigate your faith. And she has that personality that is very systematic and is very procedural and is very forthright and is very much, I say what I'm thinking. But she's, and she's able to know so much and yet her understanding is limited. And so Jesus has to reveal to her the power of living faith. And so now Jesus gets even more real with her in verse 25. Jesus said to her, he has said to her, your brother will rise again. She said, oh yeah, someday, some way. And then Jesus says to her in verse 25, no, no, no. Look, I just picture, he's just looking her right in the eyes and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You're looking at resurrection and life right now. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die Can you accept that? Do you believe this? So he's pushed her right to the line. Look at, you know, you just imagine, you know, she's talking about the resurrection someday, some way. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Right here, right now, what do you believe about the power of God manifest through me? I am the resurrection and the life. What can you do with that? It reminds me of when Jesus talked to his disciples and he said, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, oh, some say the prophet, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist is risen from the dead and all this. And Jesus takes it all in and then he says, oh, yeah, that's interesting. But, but who do you say that I am? And you just feel like a hush you know, kind of falls over the disciples in that moment. And then Peter is the one who comes out and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father in heaven. And she's at that same crossroads. Who do you say I am? What do you really believe about me? I know, what you, I know, your, I know about your theology, and it's really good. It's really sound. You believe a, you believe a lot of right things. But we're in like a crisis moment right now. What do you believe about me? And in 1127, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed. The word there in the Greek is just believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So she has, so she brings her will to the table when she says, yes, Lord. And this is a powerful moment because he's pulling her out. She doesn't know how far she had sunken into this low place, but Jesus is pulling her out. 
And when he challenges her, when he pushes her right to the line and says, what do you believe about me? I'm the resurrection and the life. Can you accept that? And she says, yes, Lord. She just brought her will. This is what the Bible calls a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. She said, yes, Lord. And then she says, it's kind of like the prayer where he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. He's like, here's all I got. I can accept, I do believe that you are the savior of the world. You're the one who God sent into the world to save us. And so in John eleven thirty eight, they go to the tomb where Lazarus is. And Jesus, it says again, being deeply moved within came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. <laughs> what you love about Jesus, and among many things, is that he is such a person of faith and action. Faith and action. No stumbling. This is what I'm here to do, so remove the stone. Don't you think, you know, anytime God asks us to do something, inside we have a wrestling match and a struggle. And I, and I don't know that Jesus didn't have any of that, because the Bible says he learned obedience through the things he suffered. That's kind of a mysterious verse, right? But he comes right up to a tomb where a dead person has just been buried, and he says, move the stone away. But Martha, remember I told you about her personality, right? This is the one he's been talking to about all these things. Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. So she immediately, this is how we do. We shift into our practical mode. You know, this is where she came from. Jesus pulled her out of it. She's coming to a place of faith. And then no sooner does Jesus start to take action on the faith and the thing he's been talking about, she shifts back to her very practical way and says, well, here's the reasons that you can't do that. And Jesus said, I feel like we had a conversation about this. Did not I say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? And then, yes, yeah, 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 you did say that. So they removed the stone. That takes faith, right? Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth. (laughs) I mean, I think it's incredible. Every time I see this, bound hand and foot with wrappings. I picture it like a mummy. I don't know if that's right. And his face was wrapped around. Yeah, that's a mummy. With his face wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So look at how he he brought Martha along and then he pulls Lazarus out. And I love the words, unbind him and let him go, because that's the command that Jesus gives every single time somebody experiences his resurrection life. Take the wrappings off of that person, unbind them, and set them free to live their life. But guess what? People who get set free like that, they don't live their life. They come to Jesus and go, anything, whatever, I'll do it. My life's yours. My life's yours. So that he sets us free completely. Our hearts come back to him. And then we walk after him and walk in his ways. But unbind him and let him go. Powerful. 
But there were two resurrections, or two kinds of resurrections that day. There was Lazarus' resurrection, which, which was a resurrection of body and spirit. But also there was a resurrection of faith. Martha was lying in a grave of her own reasonings, but Jesus called her out, unbound her, and made her free. This is what I feel that the Lord gave me when I was preparing for for Easter this year, that the Lord was just stirring my heart, that there would be people in church, in in church in our church, who have come to a place that they've, they've gone into the place of more wrestling with God and have lost that simplicity of faith in trusting him, have gotten into a place where we kind of have to know everything before we'll obey, that we've gotten into a place, some of us, where, where intellectual arguments that we've heard have been chipping away at the integrity of our faith, and now we feel like we have more doubts and questions than answers. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no man deceive himself. If any among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Do you understand that that means that all the things that are presenting as wisdom but are warring against the gospel in your heart, those things have to be released. They have to be released to God. They have to be completely set, let go of. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. When God hears all the arguments and the things that people present to try to tear down the integrity of the gospel, he goes, that stuff's total foolishness. Because here's the truth, and the truth is solid, and the truth will stand forever. For it is written, God is the one, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. There's a trap, there's a snare in our own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are what? Useless. If you're trying to get all the answers before you believe, you've got the the whole picture upside down. God is calling to you and saying, but can you trust me? He's looking you in the eyes, just like Jesus looked looked Lazarus' sister Martha in the eyes. And he's saying, but I'm the resurrection and the life. Can you accept that? Can you believe that if you believe in me, you'll never die? That means you will be a part of that eternal resurrection. And he who believes in me and lives will never die. Can you accept that? Can you accept that? The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they're useless. Or have you got some useless reasoning that has done nothing but tear down and destroy the fiber of your faith? In Luke 18, 17, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So if you've been trying to come to a place of faith and have found that you just couldn't seem to get through the door, I'm trying to help you see the picture. The door is very low. And each one of us has to, must absolutely humble himself. Each one of us must become a little child to enter in. And to those who humble themselves and come to God for salvation and simple faith, Romans 4 or 5 says, but to the one who does not work, you don't have any works, nothing you can boast of before God, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness.
that the ultimate hope of salvation is that we will not only be saved from this endless cycle of guilt and shame and the things that put that sin puts us under but that we also will have a righteousness that is from God and it's a righteousness it's not it's not you 2.0 it's not you just a little better it's Jesus himself formed in you and that's real righteousness and so let's all stand up together we're going to sing we're going to glorify God but I want to give you a chance today that if, if the Lord is stirring your heart and you know that either your faith is in the grave, you have faith, but your faith's in the grave, it's worn out. That reasonings have become an affliction to you. That thoughts, what some people call obsessive thoughts, things you just cannot shake, something you heard from somebody, something somebody said, something you read in a book, whatever it is, um, but some then has worked its way in and so you can't trust you don't feel that you can trust the bible you're not sure you can trust uh you know the church anymore you don't know if you can trust god himself you don't know if jesus if the historical accounts of jesus are true you know you've got all this stuff going on in your heart well I, I, what i want to do is as we begin to worship and as we begin to pray i want you to just slip your hand up in this moment and we're just going to pray over you and pray over the church And we're going to ask God for resurrection faith. For a faith that can accept the foolishness of this message. For a faith that can accept the foolishness of this gospel. And, on, and, and no sooner do we accept it like little children. But this incredible joy and this incredible peace comes in as our sins are forgiven us and we're made free. The Lord, in the name of Jesus, right now I pray over this church over those here, over those watching from home, over those with their hands up, over those who who are asking you, Lord, for a resurrection in their faith. In the name of Jesus, I pray, let your power be mighty and great toward them right now and right here. I pray that the word of God with power, Lord, will implant itself in their hearts like a seed, Lord. And I pray that a seed of faith would be set in each and every heart, God. Uh, uh, The faith to see past, Lord, the things that cause us to stumble and fall. And see past and to see right into the face of Jesus. And to see that you're saying, I can be trusted. Forget about what people say. Forget about what somebody told you. But look at me. Turn your eyes to me. You say that to us, Lord. You say that to each one. Look at me. Fix your eyes on me and forget about everything else. And I pray that they would be able to see, that we all would be able to see, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I pray for a powerful resurrection of faith. And Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray in the name of Jesus that they would hear the gospel call with crystal clarity. Come unto me. Are you weary? Are you worn out? Are you tired of the life that you've been living? Are you tired of not being able to see what, where, where anybody can find any hope in this dark world? And you said, come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am meek. I am humble in heart. And your word was to each of us, to everyone who comes, that we find rest for our souls. And I pray for rest for the soul to enter in, Lord, for every heart that needs to know Jesus Christ. 
meet us here, Lord, with faith. And I pray, Lord, that we would trust in you and take you at your word. You said, none of those who come to me will I in any way cast out. We'd stand on that word, Lord. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Breathe life, Lord. Breathe life into every heart that's asking and seeking and knocking right now. And do it for your namesake and your glory. Amen.